Thanks, Lorraine. Great to have that part of the Bible open, if you can keep it there, uh, in Romans chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at uh, Christians and government. So we should pray, shouldn't we? Will you join me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your rule. And we thank you for your word. Help us today to understand how we should engage with this world around us under your sovereign hand. And we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking today in Romans chapter 13 at Christians and government. And as we do that, we should remember, I guess as we start, that we have an incredible amount of freedom here in Australia. An incredible amount of freedom. I take it, apart from some children in the foyer, you weren't harassed on your way in this morning. Is that right? Good. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, you weren't harassed. We're not under pressure to meet. We are absolutely free to do that. We have many blessings in Australia that are connected to uh, our religion. Now, there is some interesting things happening with our parliament in this next week. You might be aware that Penny Wong uh, is uh, leading the charge on a change to our Discrimination Act um, concerning protections for students um, in religious schools. Changes that have significant implications, uh, both for schooling and for uh, the wider world. Now, as we think about changes like this, how should we engage? How should we use the freedom that God has given us? That's the topic today. And so we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13. And as per usual, context is the key. You'll hear me say this again and again. When we come to a passage of Scripture, what do we need to do? We need to consider the context. The first part of the context is to think about the history this wasn't written last week. It certainly wasn't written with any changes to the Discrimination Act in Australia in mind at all. Paul was writing to the church in Rome in the late 50s AD. It was a time when Nero was the emperor. And early in Nero's reign, you might know that he was a bit crazy in the end, and particularly a persecutor of Christians, at the start, it didn't start out that way. It was a relatively peaceful beginning to his taking over. However, over time, the emperors in Rome had taken on the position not only of highest authority in the Republic, but also of deity. And so for Nero to be Caesar was for him to say, I am Lord. I am Lord. I am in charge of the empire. And for some people, that actually meant worshipping the emperor. Christians, however, had a different declaration. In the church in Rome, there are a bunch of people who would say, Jesus is Lord. Yep. And when we say that, we mean something deeply personal, don't we? We, we think of that as, that as an idea that's deeply personal. If I say Jesus is Lord, it really doesn't impact anyone else. It's just me. That's, that's how we think. We're entirely individualistic in Australia. But in that society, for you to say that there was another Lord, to say Jesus is Lord, was actually a profoundly revolutionary thing to be saying. And in doing this, the church is really following what the Jews have been doing for ages. The Jews have been saying that Yahweh is Lord. It made sense. There's one God, he's over all, all the nations, and he is in charge. So the history was... Caesar was in charge, and here were two groups in society that were saying somebody else other than Caesar was in charge. Add into that the concept of, uh, that Jesus had been dealing with 
of being challenged by Caesar's power. So you might remember uh, some people tried to trick Jesus with regard to taxes. Do you remember this? So they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I've got a whammy for you. Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? Now, everybody wants the answer to be what? That's right. That's what we all want the answer to be. But it wasn't what Jesus said. He said something very famous. Does anyone remember what he said? That's right. It's exactly that. So when it came to coins, Jesus said, whose head is on the coin? Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So he got out of it by saying there's actually different obligations, one to God and one to Caesar, and we need to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then we find Jesus actually submits himself to the authority of Rome. Do you remember at Easter time, we celebrate that Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities. Pilate puts him on trial and he says, don't you know that I have the authority to free you or to condemn you? And Jesus, again, famously talks about who's in control, where he says, you would have no authority, it says in John 19, other than it has been granted to you. Now, that's incredibly brave, isn't it? You're looking in the face of the one who can condemn you, and you say, the only authority you have is derived from a greater authority who is over you, who is really in control, God. And then we see in Jesus' life, He submits himself to his father and to the Roman authorities, and he is crucified. Jesus died under Rome, under Roman rule. Wonderfully, Sunday celebrates, Resurrection Sunday celebrates that he was raised from the dead. And now we are told that Jesus is ruling over Rome. Is that right? Jesus was crucified under Rome. He conquered death, and now he's raised up to rule over Rome as the Lord of the universe. That's Jesus' story. With all of that running through their minds, Paul then has written to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. And uh, Stu brought this to us a little while ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago now. And we're told this in verses 1 to 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. See, now, what the church in Rome is told in Romans chapter 12 is don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform. Jesus has said, he is Lord. Caesar says, he's Lord. And now Paul has written to them and says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Well, what might we think is happening? It's revolution time, baby, isn't it? Don't don't conform to the pattern of the world. You've got a different Lord. Be different. But then in the rest of chapter 12, he explains what being different looks like. Here's a couple of verses. You listened to Stu preach a couple of weeks ago. But He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the New Testament doesn't contain a blueprint for cultural revolution. What it does contain a a blueprint for is a personal revolution where, in fact, we are leaving room in love for God to do the ruling. So we don't conform, but we act differently to the society by not taking revenge, by leaving room for God's wrath, by living at peace with everyone. 
So the question then comes, well, what should we do with government? How should we react? And that's what's happening in, in Romans chapter 13. Let's see what it has to say. Now, in, in the first service, someone said to me, I knew you were going to find a way to get this in, but uh, what planet is this? Mars. Okay, right, Mars. Okay. If you're wandering around Mars, you could wander around Mars and you would find nothing man-made other than has been put there by the Americans. Well, there's a pile of rubble, I think, that the uh, Europeans made that didn't land properly, but not very much. So if you wander around, you find rocks and sand. You find nothing created other than that human beings have made. And so here's the InSight lander that uh, landed the other day. So exciting. It's going to measure Mars quakes and uh, the temperature of Mars and all sorts of exciting things. Anyway, ask me about it later because I know that will be the thing on your hearts and minds afterwards. But I'm excited about this. Here's the point, right? There's nothing on Mars that has the shape of that other than was built by humans. Nothing else has been created on Mars. It's just earth and dirt. Here's something that's been man-made. It's only existing because somebody made it. Have a look at Romans 13, 1 to 3. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of anyone in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. The point here is that there's no authority that exists, just like Mars. It's a barren landscape except for the things that God has created. All authority is God's authority. Secondly, we're told here that we should therefore submit because it's God's authority. He put it in place, so if you are submitting to that, you're honouring God. If you're rebelling against that, you're rebelling against God. You see the logic of how it works. We're told in Colossians chapter 3 that it's always God who is the one who is ultimately in charge. So have a look at this in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you see this? Submitting to earthly authority is a way of honouring God. Ultimately, you're working for God. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving when it comes to submitting to earthly authorities. Now, this is a, uh, a wedding po a picture that I found uh, online. Can you see they're holding swords? Uh, how many sword engagements do you think the Australian military has had uh, in the last 20 or 30 years? No. Okay. Nobody is engaging with swords in the Australian military. So why do they have them? They are purely for dress. Okay? They're ceremonial. They have no real purpose. But I want you to see in the world that Paul was writing in, the sword had a different meaning. Have a look with me at the next couple of verses, four to five. The one whose authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, 
but also as a matter of conscience. See, here's what he says. We're to submit to rulers because of good order. They don't carry the sword for nothing. They will keep order in society. And we're told to submit for good conscience because it's God ultimately that we're serving. Submit for good order. Submit for the good of your conscience. It's worth noting that there are some things that can't be ruled out by law. Look at Galatians 5, 22 to 23. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I always want to say patience because I've got the old NIV in my mind. Bear with me. For show forbearance. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Note this. Against such things there is no law. Isn't that beautiful? So whoever the governing authority is, they're not going to rule out kindness because it's a gift offered to others. Good living can't be outlawed. So what are we seeing so far? We're seeing that there is God who appoints earthly rulers. God appoints the earthly rulers, and he appoints them for three things. He appoints them for the good order of society, for the order of all. Now, think about this with me. What happens when you take law and order out of a society? Everybody is happy, and they all go on holidays. Is that what happens? Think New Orleans, think Mexico being taken over by drug cartels. What happens to society when you withdraw law and order? You tell me. That's right. Government is a good gift from God to order society. That is a gift from God. Secondly, he's there to punish and restrain evil. We want law and order to restrain evil. Now, a terrible perversion and this is why we like our friends IJM, the International Justice Mission. In the third world, when you call on the cops and they're corrupt, so there is no law and order, that is a terrible society. We want our governments to punish and restrain evil, and we want them to reward what is good. These three things are a common grace from God. What that means is they're not just for the church. They're a gift to the whole world, a gift from him. Order, punishment, and reward are his gift of good government to the world. And we can be incredibly grateful for it when we see it, and we can be greatly grieved when we don't. Okay, when you walk past a busker, how obligated do you feel to give them something? Is anyone feeling, does anyone feel obligated? I really should put something in. Put your hand up. Okay, a couple of you. All right. We'll, we'll take, take note of you guys. That's good. Uh, does anyone think you're on my pavement? There's no way you're getting anything from me. I got a hand last time, so okay, but you're probably a little bit shy about that. But here's the thing. There's no actual obligation, is there? There's no obligation. You can choose to do it or not to do it. I want you to see in this passage here that we have obligations that you might not have anticipated. Have a look with me at verses 6 to 10. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. 
See, what do we owe? We have obligations and honour that we owe different people in society. We owe the government taxes. Did you know this? It's a good thing that we have the taxes we have because then we get all our wonderful education and Medicare and all sorts of exciting things. It's good. Pay your taxes. But it's interesting, isn't it? If you owe honour, pay honour. If you owe respect, pay respect. And I, I do wonder what that would do for our marriages if we gave the honour and respect that we owed one another. So we have obligations and honour, and we see that the one debt that you can never pay off, always give honour where honour, taxes where taxes, the debt you can never pay off is the debt of love. Because God has loved you far more than you can possibly love, and so you owe everyone a debt of love. Love your neighbour is the way that Christians should engage with the society around them. Now, is there a growing expectation for Christmas in your house? Well, I suspect if you've got kids under a certain age, it's absolutely building, isn't it? Caro has actually put up a little uh, thing on her thing that says how many weeks there are to Christmas. It's all very exciting, right? We've got our Christmas tree up. The kids are getting excited. Expectation, because good things are coming, right? Now, as Christians, you have a Christmas day coming too. Not just our Christmas day, although come along, it'd be great. Uh, we'd love to see you there. That's a little plug for Christmas, fantastic. But we have, we have a day coming that you're going to really look forward to. And it's mentioned in this passage here. Have a look with me, 11 to 14. And do this, that is giving honour and submitting to authorities, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. See, what's the better day that's coming for us? What's the better day? What's the day we're looking forward to? That's right. Mumble it back to me, church. Absolutely. With conviction. The return of Jesus. Guys, I've got to have a moment with you. Imagine it was really going to happen. Imagine if everything around us was going to fall by its wayside. Imagine your mortgage didn't matter anymore. Imagine there was no need to worry about your children's education. Imagine your health perfectly, the health of the people you love restored. Imagine no more sickness, no more sadness. Imagine the wrongs set right. Imagine the judge of all the universe turning up. Church, we should long for that day. We should long for it. And we should live in light of it. He says, the day is almost here, therefore live this way. Are you with me? So because I want to ask, do we believe it? And the way I'll know that you believe it is, has it changed anything you do? Any priorities you have? Is anything different because you know and expect the return of Jesus? And so church, we need to stop the spiritual slumbering. Wake up, is what it says in the text here. We need to wake up spiritually. Holy living in light of the day is to characterize Christians. We should be the best citizens in society. Really. 
because we love Jesus and we're expecting his return. The passage that Heidi read for us, Jesus' parable of the bridegroom returning and the people with their lamps, he finishes it with the punchline, which is, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus is saying, one day I'm going to return. It'll be sooner than you think. You need to be ready. We need to live in light of his return. All right, that's all good. That's what the passage says. How do we view the relationship between church and state? Remembering that Paul wasn't writing about church and state. He was writing about godly living with the church and the state. But we want to think a little bit more systematically. So let's think that through. The first response that we can have is, I just don't want to talk about it today. Can you get off politics? What are the two things we're not supposed to talk about? Religion and politics. Well, let's talk about religion and politics, okay? So our first response is, I just want to escape. I want to go and live in a yurt far away. And we might think to ourselves, I want out of here, okay? And and we might even baptise it with some scripture and say, come out from among them. And so we're going to go, I'm going to leave this terrible mess that is Australian society. I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to go and live in a yurt. Now, now not many of us are living in yurts. We've got quite nice houses. We're not going to a yurt. But I do want to say we have mental yurts that we go to. I can't be bothered engaging with Australian politics anymore. I'm too cynical. I'm sick of the lying. I'm over... Do you know this feeling? And so we have a little mental yurt of escape. I just won't engage anymore in the mess. And guys, I want to tell you this morning, as I speak to myself and to you, that is unfaithful and it is unloving with the power of democracy that's been given to us. Because there are countries in this world where people are literally dying for the opportunity to change the government. We have that opportunity and we scorn it and treat it as nothing. It's unloving and it's unfaithful. Escape can't be our response to politics. A second possible uh, response to politics is what I call entitlement. And entitlement comes with this sort of saying. It comes with, we're a Christian country. So this is not escape. This is engagement. But engagement on the basis that somebody owes us something. We're the Christians in this country. This is the foundation of our country. Why can't everyone just get it together? Get in line with what our country was founded on. Now, there's something profoundly attractive about that. But when we engage with politics from the position of entitlement, what happens is that we can overstate our position in society and it will make us unduly angry. What I mean by that is the number of people that are genuinely lovers of Jesus who are putting him number one in their hearts is far less than the 60% who say they're Christian in our, in our nation. Isn't that true? Right? And we shouldn't be thinking, even if that was right, that everybody's obligated to do the Christian thing in our country because a whole bunch of people think differently to us. In fact, arguably the majority do. When we engage from a position of entitlement, we are not humble, we are not loving, we want to hit people over the head with the statistics. And should they change, will we suddenly be humble? We'll just be more angry, won't we? Entitlement isn't how we're doing, how how we're going to meet with politics. Engagement, I want to suggest to you, is. Engagement. There's a wonderful verse I'm going to finish on uh, from Jeremiah 29, where it says, Seek the good of the city and pray for it. 
as the people went into exile, God spoke to his people and he said, when you go to this foreign land, when you sit in a land that's run by people who don't love me, your job is to seek the good of the city and pray for it. That sounds like us. That sounds like us. And so I want to encourage you, embody the message of Jesus. Be Christians in the society and engage as citizens of Australia. You have a vote. It's just as powerful as someone else's. It's not more powerful than someone else's. Engage with our society. So how can the church relate to the state? Well, there are a couple of different options. Let me just show you a variety. One of them is, uh, like the church in England, where the Anglicans have their bishops appointed by the Queen, right? So that's the state over the church. They're joined together and the state is in charge. Alternatively, you can go to the Vatican City, where the church is over the state. They're one and the same thing, but the church has the upper hand. Or you can go to America, which has that really famous thing where they talk about the separation of church and... So there's a wall between the two and they're never supposed to meet. Now, in Australia, we don't have a constitution, although we like that language, don't we? We don't have a constitution that says that's the case. Actually, it doesn't say that in Australia, okay? But I think in practice, we look similar to the Americans, but what happens is we have this sphere where as peers, we engage with society. There is a state, there is a church, and there's a place where we meet and do business, which is called politics. And so what I want to encourage you, church, is that in this space, there should be a diversity of platforms and people. There will never be one party that will entirely sum up the Christian worldview. There won't be the Christian party, although there will be a party that shares that name. Because it's possible for intelligent, good-hearted Christians to disagree on things. Did you know this? With full commitment to Jesus, with love for neighbour, we can disagree on economic policy. We can disagree on the priority or order of things. We can disagree on national boundaries. We can, we can disagree on education policy. So when someone says they are the Christian party, I want to suggest to you something bad has happened. It's okay to try and represent a Christian worldview, but I want to believe, and I do believe, there are Christians on the Labor side, there are Christians on the Liberal side. Maybe, I don't know, under the grace of God, there might be Christians in the Greens. I don't know, but that's possible. Here's the thing, though. When we condense it down and we say there's only one Christian party, we do an injustice to godly people who are seeking to engage with politics. We need to engage, but we need to engage with a variety of platforms and a variety of people. Now, you're all there sitting there, I'm sure, thinking, yeah, yeah, but what happens when it goes bad? What happens when it goes bad? What, what do we do in situations where things aren't rosy? Well, let me give you some examples. The Bible knows about things not going well. You remember Daniel? Daniel was told not to pray, that prayer was outlawed. And so what was his response? He went upstairs, opened his window, knelt down and prayed. And he said to the society, if you want to outlaw prayer, come and arrest me. And they did. Or maybe Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who were told to bow down to an image of gold. Worship of God is outlawed. Bow down and worship the image of gold. And they said, we want you to know, O king, that we will not bow down and serve the image of gold that you have set up. 
The God who we serve is able to save us, but even if he does not, we want you to know we will not bow down. Glorious, right? It was clear. What about the, uh, the place where Pharaoh said that the Hebrews were to kill their firstborn sons when they're in slavery in Egypt? And the midwife said, no way. Here's what happens. The Hebrew women are vigorous and they give birth before we can get there. So here are all these boys that got born. What a mistake. Unfortunate, isn't it? But make no mistake, they're rebelling against authority. Or, or what about Esther, who gets word that her people are going to be destroyed and she breaks the law of the court and goes and speaks to the king to intervene to stop the genocide of her people? Or what about in Acts 5 when the apostles are told you may speak no more in the name of Jesus and the very next day they're found in the temple courts proclaiming Jesus because it is better for us to serve God rather than men. Brothers and sisters, they intervened where it was clear. They intervened when it was loving. They intervened to show that it is possible to resist authority but it should be as our last resort. And in Australia here, I'm never going to tell you to take up arms against your oppressors because we have this amazing thing called a vote. We need to get better organised. We need to be involved better in our society, but we don't need to take up arms. We have this functional democracy where we can change the government if we need to. So how should we engage? I want to suggest uh, four things as we finish. We need to honour Jesus as Lord. You and I need to keep Jesus number one in our hearts and secondly, we need to honour our leaders as appointed by God. Somebody said that you get the leaders you pray for. Just let that sink in for a moment. Uh, so how are we doing, church? It says, in, it says in 1 Timothy 2 that we're to pray for leaders and all those kings and all those in authority. And we do occasionally, but I'm not very faithful at it. Are you? No, don't answer that. But, but here's the thing. I suspect we do have the leaders we've prayed for. And maybe we could do better. So we should seek God first and we should pray for our leaders. That's the first way. Second is we should love. Who would have thought? We should love. We should love our enemies. We should love the least. What will that mean for us as Christians engaging with politics? Well, firstly, it should be that if you ever meet a Christian in politics, they embody humility. They scorn cynicism. And they are very aware of what I've called platform blindness. Platform blindness is when I sign up for a political party and I say, I'm all in with you. And then I stop discerning the policies of that party. Are you with me? They might be doing profoundly unchristian things, but I'm swallowing the whole lot because I checked my brain at the door. Platform blindness has us endorse things that are profoundly unchristian because we've signed up for a party. We need to love our enemies and we need to love the least. And if that doesn't mean asylum seekers at some point that doesn't mean that we all share the same answers. It means that we should have a common concern for the least. It means that we should think about the answers that we come up with. So honour, love. Thirdly, we should render to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. What does that mean? Where is our home? 
We have our citizenship in heaven, it says in Philippians 3.21. And so you should engage with politics, first of all, as a citizen of, citizen of heaven, but then in the system that you are a part of here in Australia. Use the democratic process as a citizen of heaven. Lastly, I want to encourage us, because the scriptures do, to live holy, hard-working lives. What does that mean? We should engage wholly and wholeheartedly with this whole area of politics and not abandon it. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Brothers and sisters, we need to care about our nation. We need to use the power we have through democracy well. We need to seek to honour God. Our, our, our passion here as a church, we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park, the growing southwest, for three things. For their salvation, for the good of the community, and the glory of God. I want to tell you, church, that's part of our vision, and it could not be a better way for us to work for the good of the community than to prayerfully and wholeheartedly engage in the political room. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a good and great God, that no authority exists other than you're under your hand. We ask for faithfulness for your people who are bearing up under injustices and hardship. Father, would you sustain them and give them the freedoms that we enjoy? Father, with the freedoms that you've granted us, help us not to be apathetic, to be cynical, and to be unfaithful with the great power you've entrusted to us. Help us to lift up our leaders well, federally, at state and local government level. Help us, Father, to honour you with the power you've entrusted to us. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay? Solved, isn't it? Maybe we've just started the conversation. Uh, Daniel will tell us that uh, we can fill in our Care and Connect cards once I've finished with the Lord's Supper. As, I, uh, as, as he comes and does that, can I encourage you, uh, when he does that, you might still have questions that have been raised up uh, from that talk today. In fact, I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, as they come to mind, can I encourage you, jot them down. I'm very happy to, um, very happy to respond directly to people who've got, uh, got questions uh, following that up. And uh, I'm happy to chat afterwards in the foyer as well. So we've come to a time now where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we remember the goodness of our Lord Jesus in doing what we talked about just in the, uh, the talk there, which is laying down his life under Roman authority that he might pick it up again as Lord of the universe. Church, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. Well, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. And we do this until he returns. There we go, I believe you. Come, let us eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. What we're going to do now is we're going to pass around the, uh, the bread and the crackers and the juice. If you can hang on to it and we'll eat it together. Uh, if you're here today for the first time, uh, then welcome. Uh, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are able to, uh, to take in this, um, this bread and juice and uh, if you're not yet, maybe you want to let it go past. But then we find Jesus actually submits himself to the authority of Rome. Do you remember at Easter time, we celebrate that Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities. Pilate puts him on trial and he says, don't you know that I have the authority to free you or to condemn you? And Jesus, again, famously talks about who's in control, where he says, you would have no authority, it says in John 19, other than it has been. See, the New Testament doesn't contain a blueprint for cultural revolution. What it does contain a a blueprint for is a personal revolution where, in fact, we are leaving room in love for God to do the ruling. So we don't conform, but we act differently to the society by not taking revenge, by leaving room for God's wrath, by living at peace. He appoints the earthly rules, and he appoints them for three things. He appoints them for the good order of society, for the order of all. Now, think about this with me. What happens when you take law and order out of a society? Everybody is happy, and they all go on holidays. Is that what happens? Think New Orleans, think Mexico being taken over by drug cartels. What happens to entitlement? What happens is that we can overstate our position in society and it will make us unduly angry. What I mean by that is the number of people that are genuinely lovers of Jesus who are putting him number one in their hearts is far less than the 60% who say they're Christian in our, in our nation. Isn't that true? Right? And we shouldn't be thinking, even if that was right, that everybody's obligated to a time now where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we remember the goodness of our Lord Jesus in doing what we talked about just in the, uh, the talk there, which is laying down his life under Roman authority that he might pick it up again as Lord of the universe. Church, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night before Eve, and I do believe there are Christians on the labour side, there are Christians on the liberal side, maybe, I don't know, under the grace of God, there might be Christians in the Greens, I don't know, but that's possible. Here's the thing though, when we condense it down and we say there's only one Christian party, we do an injustice to godly people who are seeking to engage with politics. We need to engage, but we need to engage with a variety of platforms and a variety not to do it. I want you to see in this passage here that we have obligations 
that you might not have anticipated. Have a look with me at verses 6 to 10. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, they intervened when it was loving. They intervened to show that it is possible to resist authority, but it should be as our last resort. And in Australia here, I'm never going to tell you to take up arms against your oppressors because we have this amazing thing called a vote. We need to get better organised. We need to be involved better in our society, but we don't need to take up arms. We have this functional democracy. The church in England where the Anglicans have their bishops appointed by the Queen, right? So that's the state over the church. They're joined together and the state is in charge. Alternatively, you can go to the Vatican City where the church is over the state. They're one and the same thing, but the church has the upper hand. Or you can go to America 